I work on the principle that if you're the dumbest guy in the room, you're usually going to be all right because you're surrounded by pretty smart people or people smarter than you. So the way we looked at it, instead of being reactive or even proactive or anything, we have to stop, we have to think about, okay, where are we going? What's the market looking like? What are people going to do? How's it all going to pan out? This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Food served on planes hasn't always been seen as the height of gastronomic experiences. But in many instances, plane food has changed. Chefs like Neil Perry and Luke Mangan join different airlines to enhance their food offering. And small artisan producers were brought on board and championed. With the hospitality and aviation sectors collapsing, what has the impact been on small producers supplying those markets? Pierre Issa, otherwise known as Pepe Sea, is one of the world's best butter producers. With half of his business supplying Qantas and the hospitality sector, he's had to change fast to save his business. Pepe, how are you going, mate? Yeah, good, good. Thanks, Hux. There's a lot of things to talk about today, but could you start by telling us what business was like before the pandemic and what impact it had? Okay, so uh, just before, so the, the 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 sort of pandemic or the 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 effect of the pandemic hit us around the twenty third, twenty fourth of March. Uh, I must admit, March this year for us was an incredible month. It broke all records. So, um, uh, just the background on our business is that we supply cafes, restaurants, uh, function centres. Um, uh, all food service, and then you've got the airlines, and and um, uh, and then a small part of our business was retail uh, and online. So we've had our online business for about five years now as well. So when the when the when it hit, when they announced it that there's going to be you know the the uh, the measures in place for people to stay home and restaurants are going to close and the airlines um, grounded. And all of that happened. Um, we just had a complete drop in sales, like by about ninety percent. So that Monday morning when we came into work, every single food service order was cancelled. An email came in: "Oh, cancel the order! Cancel the order!" So even the bakeries, which make up a big part of our business, everyone was just scared. It was like it was like not shut it down. Everyone was like shut it down. Um, so we were like, oh, my God, you know, well, that week was like, Jesus, what are we going to do here? You know, so, so it was very, very scary, very scary. But before the, the pandemic, it was uh, all systems go. Every single sector was just booming. Um, it was like a freight train. So, you know, m- more cafes were opening up, uh, existing cafes in the market. We, we get a lot of, you know, we're very proactive with our marketing. So, you know, I was um, doing a lot of interstate travel to try to get a lot of bakeries on board with our butter sheets and, and um, you know, we were gaining more traction with the airlines, especially the international airlines, and, and it, it was fantastic. You know, um, uh, Qantas were opening up more routes and uh, to, to, you know, serve more butter, which was amazing because we love Qantas. And, 
um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was very good times. It was, it was good for our business. You know, we're coming into, in November, we turned 10. So, um, we, that's what you'd sort of expect at around the 10 year mark where you've sort of, you're better known in the marketplace and, and yeah, it was good. It was good. So you had that sudden impact of the pandemic just literally overnight, um, ending 90% of your business. How did you feel and did you have um, a worry for the future of the business? Oh, uh, look, we, in yes, the answer is yes. I mean, you lose 90% of anything um, that you care and love and you've spent, you know, 10 years building it. You, you're going to be very worried. Uh there was a little bit of a sense of panic amongst our staff that because once, you know, they got up and announced these things, you know, everyone came to work on Monday and everyone, everyone was expecting some kind of, you know, oh, I'm going to be sent home or something was going to happen. Um, so, yeah, we were very, we were very worried about it um, because you, when you first hear the announcement, you, you're not really thinking, oh, what, what could we do? To, to fix this, you're just worried. You're, you're sort of in a bit of a panic. You managed to change uh, what you do pretty quickly, though, although you were just sort of saying that you, you didn't think of that initially. There was just that worry and panic. Um, but what have you done to keep the business afloat? So what we did, I mean, lucky, luckily for me, <laughs> um, I, I work on the principle that if you're the dumbest guy in the room, you're usually going to be all right because you're surrounded by pretty smart people or people smarter than you. And that's been sort of um, my, my sort of go-to thinking from, from when I first started in this industry. So I always like to be the dumbest guy in the room. Like it, it gives me a lot of comfort, right, um, which, you know, helps me. So we're, we're, we're surrounded by very, very good people that give us really, really good advice um, so instead of being, so the way we looked at it, instead of being, um, reactive or even proactive or anything, we have to stop. We have to think about, okay, where are we going? What's the market looking like? What are people going to do? How's it all going to pan out? And then we spoke to our advisors, people that are very close to us that advise us in our business on a day to day, month to month level, um, and we, we tried to work out, okay, what is this going to look like? And that's what we spent doing the first week, like from the, that 24th sort of date, 23rd, 24th of March date. So we spent a week working out where we're going, what we're going to do. And um, we came up with some pretty good solutions. So we worked out, okay, that the bakeries are going to keep going where, you know, everyone's going to want bread we are going to lose a lot of the bakery trade. So their, their trade in butter, for example, is going to drop by half. So to put that in perspective, so say you have a bakery that makes croissants, they're wholesaling part of those croissants out to other cafes or restaurants or food service uh, or airlines even. But whatever they're selling themselves is going to remain. So we estimated that the bakery trade that we do are like butter sheets and butter for bakery would be cut by half. And then we, we knew that retail had to come through that, that, okay, if restaurants are shut, 
then retail is going to go big. So we had to sort of position ourselves better in retail, make it easier for the distributors and the, and the shops to access our product so we could immediately sell into that pipeline. And thirdly, uh, the online. Online was absolutely amazing. Online just went like that first week it was very low, but as soon as we started doing, you know, packs and really promoting it and we got wind of a um, that, you know, more people are going to be staying at home, more people are going to be engaged on social media uh, and online platforms. So we were already there. We just had to really push it a little bit more. Uh, and then with the help of a lot of the local, um, you know, um, online sites like Broadsheet and, and the likes, we, you know, Concrete Playground, Time Out, they really pushed it through. And even Good Food Guide, like not Good Food Guide, Good Food, um, the Lift Out magazine, um, they really helped us push everything through. So, so we ended up with a really high demand on that as well. Do you think moving forward that the online model will be an important part of your business after this crisis? Look, I really hope so because it's sort of um, it's sort of like your own store, isn't it? So you know where people can come to a factory outlet, um, they can order online, or if you don't have your own store in a in a busy area, they have online. Now, how that's going to pan out in, in the in the long term? I don't know if if people if it's true what people say or, or what the theory is that you know people's behaviour changes over a certain amount of time and then they don't want to go back to how it was they want to keep moving forward then yes it it should remain um, but even now that that the the restrictions have eased over the last week uh, or or three or four days uh, we're seeing. Uh, a massive drop on online. You know, like this morning we've come in and we've seen a, a bit of a lift in, in food service uh, orders, but a drop by about 35% on online orders. So so it really is moving. It's, it's just a moving market, you know, and, and we're just moving with it. And that's, I guess, what we've done really well. How did you start Pepe Sayer and why butter? Oh, butter. I mean, the, the, <laughs> it's always a difficult question uh, to answer, but uh, because you saw I, I did really stumble across the idea rather than, than, than it, uh, copying someone or, or doing that. So what happened is we, we had a dessert business um, called Homemade Fine Foods and we were supplying desserts into um, into uh, like Thomas Stark's, Harris Farm, a lot of the independent retailers were doing grab-and-go desserts, which were like tiramisu, panna cotta, crumbles, um, great little business. And uh, we started that business myself, Myrna Toke, that now owns uh, or runs uh, Crumpets by Myrna, and Melissa Altman, which is my wife. The three of us started that together. And then I branched out into butter because... Uh, one just before Christmas one year, we had about 200 litres of cream uh, left over and we couldn't get rid of the cream and we were shutting for like five weeks. And we called around, you know, you call around all your mates in, in production 
houses and you go, oh, do you want some cream? I've got some leftover cream. No one wanted it. So I decided, oh, look, let's just whip this up and turn it into butter so we don't have to waste the cream, right? So we, we did that and out of the 200 litres of cream, we ended up with uh, 10 kilos of butter, which is like nothing, right? We, and there was a big mess. I mean, we were using this small mixer. It was just cream everywhere and it was a mess. And my guys were going, why are you doing this? Just don't worry about it. So I took some home. I remember it. I took some home. I thought, ah, oh, because Mel really loved eating butters and she was buying, you know, she'd always buy the international butters because they had a really nice flavor to them. So I took some home and I go, look, Mel, I've made, I've made some, you know, some butter here. And she tasted it and she goes, oh, don't give up your day job. It's horrible. <laughs> like, you were, because you're just whipping cream, really, and you're getting butter. And that's just not how good butter's made, right? So that sort of inspired me to, to sort of look at, okay, well, how is good butter made? And then what are the chefs using? And then so I started, I remember my first meeting with a chef was actually Parsi. Parsi from, from, he used to use for Mark Best, uh, work for Mark, Mark Best at uh, Mark Restaurant in Surrey Hills. So I called him up and I said, oh, I want to come see you and have a chat. And I had a chat with him and he was buying all in French butter. And, I, and, and it's like, okay, well, why are you buying French butter? What's wrong with Australian butter? And he was like, well, it tastes like water and salt. You, you can't really um, serve that to a customer because we're trying to create the ultimate experience here, you know. So it sort of really inspired me to go, okay, well, how do you make really, really nice tasting butter? And how do you become part of that experience in food rather than just, just butter, you know, or just, just serving butter or eating butter at home or whatever it is, just plain salted butter. So then I got into the whole culturing thing, and you know, oh, you need to give it flavor, but you can't just add flavor. You've got to give it natural fermented flavor and all that. So that's, that's really how it all started. Without giving away too many secrets, what, what is the secret to good butter? <laughs> like Kung Fu Panda, the secret is nothing. That's the secret. There's, there's just, I don't know. I don't know if there's, if there, I, th I think the secret to making any good product is that, I know it's going to sound like a cliche, but to be passionate about what you do. I mean, that, that's really the secret of, of any good product to really want to make something. For us, in our case, it's, we wanted to make something our kids would eat. You know, like, oh, I'm going to feed this to my kids. That was always our saying right at the beginning, you know, like my kids are going to eat this. So it's got to be like perfection. It's got to be something amazing. So, but to give it flavor and fermenting, I mean, we, you know, in Australia, we don't really have a history of fermenting food, uh, but the Europeans do. So I think that they do it really well. And, and we, doing all the research was what taught us how to do it. Um, because that information wasn't necessarily available online. You had to pick up the phone and call a lot of people and even people overseas and, and all that. So, um, yeah, fermenting cream is, is what gives it the flavour. Now, some people ferment the cream for health. We ferment the cream for flavour. Um, and then ageing it as long as you can, uh, fermenting it and then ageing it is what retains that flavour. And then, 
you know, we've, we've had to cut down the flavour a little bit, like we've had to ferment a little bit less for the Australian market because you get phone calls a bit like, uh, um, you know, oh, it's too strong and whatever. And it reminds me of when I first, first started um, in hospitality. I used to work as a waiter um, and, and when blue cheese first came in the market in Australia, it was like people were put off by it, scared by it. And it's like, and that's the same sort of, it reminded me of that when we put out our cultured butter first, it was like that. It was like, people were like, oh, what is this flavor? It's like cheese. Uh, you know, it's, it, the, the butter's rancid, it's off. And we're like, no, no, you know, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's okay to eat. It's just a bit pongy. It's meant to be, it's flavor, you know, so. So given that, was, was it easy to convince restaurants and food service to use your butter in the early days or were the challenges involved? Oh my God, the challenges. Like 2000, so we started, started making the butter in 2009, experimenting, and then all the way through 2010. So we launched the butter in November 2010. And then um, first butters were sold at the farmer's market in, in Carriage Works. But... In 2011, say about June, I was on the couch crying, going, I can't, it's not going to work. We're going to have to close this down. No one's going to, restaurants don't want it. Um, they're serving, you know, uh, imported stuff. This is before, like, you could sort of name the chefs that were really onto that, buy Australian, serve Australian, we want to promote Australian sort of food back in 2010, 2011. You know, like Neil Perry obviously championed it. Um, you've got Alex Herbert, Jared Ingersoll. Obviously, there's a few. Um, but most of the, the hatted restaurants, the, the, the high-end restaurants, were serving um, imported butters, even our airlines, right? So, so there was a big market. We knew the market was there. How do you convince them to go, hold on a sec, just because we're a nobody and we don't have a big brand or, or, or anything, how can we convince them to come on board? And, um, and uh, it turned out I had a very good friend in John Sussman and I went to him around 2011 and I said, I just can't move it, John. Uh, it's, no one's taking it. And he goes to me, mate, it's, it's legwork. You just got to go knock on every door. And after that meeting, I remember I was so inspired by that. And I thought, okay, well, maybe we're just not, we're just expecting people to run to us because we're making what we think is a good product. And even what chefs were eating and going, oh, this is lovely, but I'm not going to take French butter off the menu. Hmm. Um, to doing that legwork and, and going out and, and just a lot of, let's just say it was about, five years of very, very hard work uh, to get them to move over. And, and now I'm, I'm going through that exact same thing with bakeries, bakeries that are using imported butter, you know, wow. like um, up to a year ago until we started doing the butter sheets, um, 100% of croissants made in Australia uh, were, were imported butter sheets. It's made from imported butter. But no one talks about that stuff. Like, no, well, hold on. We, that's not doing anything for our farmers, our, 
the economy, anything. So now we're doing the same thing that we did, say, in 2011. We spent five years building. Um, to We're doing that with bakeries, you know. So, you know, given all that legwork that you, you did, what was the major breakthrough in restaurants for you? Oh, look, you can't, you cannot have this conversation without saying uh, or using the name Neil Perry. You, you ca- it can't happen. It's just, for us, I, I can't have that conversation without using his name because he, uh, he, I mean, at the end of the day, he had to sign off on it. It doesn't matter who we dealt with at Qantas Rockpool. Um, the butter ended up on, you know, business class and first class. Well, at first it was on first class, then it went into business class. But that really created a snowball effect. And the fact that Qantas management let us uh, leverage that. So um, we had good advice and we were told, you need to leverage this. And, and we didn't want to do that without their permission. So we went to them and looked. We said, hey, we want to we want to tell our story. We want to tell that we're on your airline. And they were like, yes, please go ahead. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it benefited them as well because we're a small producer and they're helping us. And, and um, it shows them in a very good light as well. And they let us do that. And I'm eternally grateful for that. And we could see just that the impact that had on our business. It was unbelievable. It just snowballed from there. Now, you've also been a regular fixture at farmers' markets. You know, even though your business has grown exponentially in the last decade, um, you're still committed to farmers' markets. I wonder if you could tell us why that is and how you think they'll bounce back in the sort of post-COVID world. Uh, look, I, I think that I think the the alternative, obviously, the alternative to a to a a, a big supermarket chain is the independent stores. But the issue we have with independent stores is they sort of carry the same stuff that big supermarkets carry. So um, if you want seasonal, if you want, you know, um, amazing products and produce, you've got to go search for it, whether it's at an at a, um, independent grocery store like, you know, fruit and veg or a farmer's market really in Australia. So you're not going to get because because the the people that go to farmers markets like we sell a lot of things at our farmers market stalls that we wouldn't sell at an independent grocer even um, because they won't take the risk it might have too short short shelf life for example our buttermilk you can only buy it from our farmers markets uh, so so I think they'll bounce back in a big way there's no doubt they're they're definitely not dead I mean we're seeing great great turnouts at Orange Grove last weekend. Uh, during the COVID period. I mean, they had to shut for a few weeks, but, you know, since they've been open, it's been great guns there. Um, in regards to my my attendance to farmers markets, I mean, I think they're amazing. They, they give people an alternative. Uh, they give us a direct way into market. Um, I don't have to pay for a, a store somewhere. I can just be at the market and pay for my a stall where I'm using it once a week, it's affordable, I'm part of a community, uh, I can reach my cl- customers. We, we find it invaluable for the amount of feedback you get in a farmer's market. I mean, the type of people that go to a farmer's market don't hesitate to tell you, hey, Pepe, you need to 
do something about this or I didn't like that or, you know, that they just come out and say it, which, which you sort of need to listen to, even though it irritates the hell out of me. But, you know, I've, I've got to take it on board and I've got to fix it. So I do that. But, um, but yeah, the markets, I mean, considering our brand started at a farmer's market, the first butters sold with, were at Carriageworks. Um, we feel very comfortable in that environment. We know it very well. Um, we, I can ta- bring out products like last weekend we, sh- we sold our Chantelli Mascarpone at Orange Grove um, and at Epic Market in, in uh, Canberra. And they were the only two places selling it. That's it. So you're, you're able to do things very, very quickly and you're able to, you know, get product to people very quickly that a store might not take because it's got a two-week two shelf life. What do you love about what you do? Uh, I guess the the best thing about what we do is the people that we deal with. Uh, I mean, the hospitality industry, it's full of so many amazing characters, to be honest with you, and it's fun, you know what I mean? So we have a, we have a really good time in our business with all the people. So for me, I deal with, you know, one day I'm dealing with farmers and the next day might be distributors and the other day it's chefs and cafe owners and then, you know, now with all the online, we're dealing directly with the public a lot more. So that's pretty crazy as well. You know, uh, as you were just sort of mentioning, you know, you do have a really strong connection with the hospitality sector. Um, how do you see the state of that in the next six months and what do you think is going to emerge as the re- industry opens up? Yeah, very interesting. I, th- I think that it it'll open up what i saw on the weekend is a lot of restaurants and cafes opening up and seating 10 people which i thought originally that oh my god how's that going to work but it sort of worked i mean people want to go out people want to get back to it i think it'll it'll open back up and a lot of people will be out uh, social distancing is obviously going to have an impact on that how much revenue they can make what what impact that has on the survival of their business uh, I do think that there'll be a lot more um, leaning cafes, if I can call them that, open up in the future. So so what I mean by that is places that don't have any tables and chairs, they've just got a bar that you lean on. Like, you know, when you go, I don't know if you've been to, if you go to Rome, for example, nearly every cafe that you go to is sort of, unless, forget the tourist ones, we're talking about, you know, for the general public there the italians go to they're just all you lean on a bar and have your coffee or your panini and then you get going you know so it's more um designed for a fast turnaround and less contact so if you were going to open a cafe today or any type of business in your business plan you're going to write the word pandemic (laughs) yeah (laughs) which which none of us ever wrote before right so you know we I've worked for multiple businesses and written many business plans and never did we write the word pandemic on a business plan. So this generation is going to be writing the word pandemic on every business plan written from now on. So if you're going to open a cafe now, you're going to want your coffee machine uh, and your service area right near the door where there's a window that you can serve out of. So if another pandemic hits, you'll want to be able to access the people straight away. You will no longer have 
a coffee machine and a till at the end of the room. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you'll have it as close to the door as possible. So there's a lot of changes that I see that are going to happen. But how quickly we can get people back into restaurants um, is, is only time will tell. But I think people are pretty much ready to go out and, and party. Well, just on that, I mean, how has this current crisis made you feel and what, what are the positives to come out of it? Oh, look, uh, the, the, the best thing that's come out of this for us is it's shown us the weaknesses in our business. It, it's highlighted them. Um, so our business will change dramatically. We will not go back to doing business how we were doing it before. Um, there's a lot of things that we just won't do. Uh, we've got to make sure that we're robust enough if another pandemic hits. Um, if another one hits in, you know, they relax it and then it comes back in six months or whatever, you're going to be thinking about all those things. So uh, so like you were saying before, uh, are you going to keep online? Or Yes, we're going to keep online and we're going to promote the hell out of it and we want a lot of people to jump on board on that. Uh, so we'll be breaking down barriers and hurdles on how to get product to people easier and quicker and make it more affordable, you know. So now we have a minimum $50 spend. I'd like to see that drop to like a $20 spend that you can use the service more often. So, so yeah, there are a lot of changes that this um, pandemic is going to, um, to make us do because the first week of the pandemic, we felt very, very exposed. And that's us. Imagine a restaurant. Imagine a cafe. Like once bitten, twice shy, right? Like if I was a restaurant owner now, like what would I be thinking? Like how how would I make this work? How how's it going to work in a in a pandemic? Well, just on that, like, what do you think are the keys to restoring that public confidence, sort of in restaurants and the food scene moving forward? Oh, definitely, just to open up. So once it's safe or they deem it safe, I mean, I can't go contrary to what the health authorities say, um, but once they open it up, I think people will just jump back, you know, a lot of, there's a percentage of people that'll just jump back onto, you know, that uh, the scene and, and go back out. Like we saw it this weekend, every place that I, that I walked past in Surrey Hills, Alexandria, that had 10 seats available, they were all full awful all all the time you know um i live opposite to pino's you know the um kachina down in alexandria and mm. he he had 10 people in there since friday night it was great it was great to see him um with people in it again you know so i think people just start doing it i don't think they're going to be scared to do it have you been in a restaurant yet and i've been in a cafe i've sat in a cafe and had a I went to Crown Street Grocer on on uh, on yesterday, and we sat down. Uh, he had like ten seats, and we sat down, and, and we ate there. Yeah, it was great. I couldn't wait. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't wait to leave home and do that. Well, I guess there's going to be an opportunity now as we sort of slowly up, open up uh, to do that more and more, um, mate. It's been bloody great chatting with you, and I think there's so much more to talk about but um, we might keep in touch and catch up with you again down the line. Um, thanks, thanks for having a chat with us today. Awesome. Thank you for having me. 
This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. 